Amen and good morning. Good morning. Good to be with you this morning. Uh, find your way to Acts chapter 1. As promised, today we are going to start the book of Acts, um, and I'm excited to do this. This is a book that I've never preached through before. I've studied it in parts and, and that sort of thing, but I've been studying it the last few months in its entirety, and I was, I've been blown away at just kind of some of the implications out of this book for us in our lives today. And so we're going to spend this fall looking at Acts with a couple of breaks uh, to do some other special stuff this fall. We'll probably come back to it in the new year, and I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't know how long it'll take. We'll just... If we don't like it, we can stop. No one's forcing us to do it. I mean, we get to decide together. So anyway, we're going to dive into that. I want to set up what I think is the core of this book with a story about my dear friend Thomas Thompson. Uh, some of y'all know Thomas. Thomas was the senior pastor of this church prior to three years ago when I stepped into that role. Uh, and I got to serve with Thomas Thompson. He was the senior pastor. I was his executive pastor for about a decade. And those were like such amazing and just sweet years of ministry for me. If, if you know Thomas, you know just he was a wonderful pastor. And uh, he is a great man and a dear friend of mine, a lifelong friend. Uh, I cannot probably name the ways in which he has shaped me because they're innumerable. I like just so many ways that he has shaped me positively through the years. Um, he's gone on to be a leadership coach here in Colorado Springs and still doing great things for Jesus. Uh, but about 15 years ago, that's when he came to us, we hired Thomas out of the great state of Texas and love him so much. Uh, but you know what's real annoying about Thomas? Um, <laughs> it's a great way to introduce anyone. Um, Thomas would always use, and this is maybe a Texan thing, these like folksy Texas phrases. He would like throw them out in like times where he wanted to prove a point, and he would talk like as if he was raised on a dude ranch in the panhandle. And he would say things like, you know, well, back in Texas, we'd say that guy's all hat and no cattle. <laughs> That's something he actually said in a sermon once. And I'm like, man, you were raised in the suburbs of Dallas. I've <laughs> like, you can see Ikea from where you live. Don't talk <laughs> like you're a cowboy. Come on, man. And it would always bug me, but he'd throw out these phrases. Here's a few. That's harder than being a one-legged man in a butt-kicking contest. He's about as smart as a sack of wet mice. Ugh. <laughs> He's so honest, you could shoot craps with him over the phone. Interesting. That's a thinker. You got to think about it. Should I keep going? Uh, he went after that like a wolf after guts. Ugh. That's something he actually said in a sermon to prove a point. I'm like, Thomas, we all stopped listening because that's such a gross metaphor. So anyway, I... I would just get annoyed, and I'd give him a hard time about these phrases. I'm like, man, why do you always talk like that? And one time, in confidence, in con total confidence, he told me, listen, I'll just tell you this. Uh, I, like, nobody talks like that in Texas. I make all that stuff up on the spot. Nobody uses those phrases. Uh, he told me that in confidence, so just between you and I, don't tell other people. If you see Thomas, don't bring this up. 
Um, so this would bother me for years. And so I decided, listen, two can play this game, make up phrases from where you're from. I'm mostly from Colorado, but I was born in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Some of you might say, don't you mean Chattanooga? No, Yankees. Uh, Chattanooga is how you say it if you're from Tennessee. I was born in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I moved from there when I was five years old, and I haven't been back since, but I do have Google. So I hopped on the Googler, and I Googled things about Chattanooga, Tennessee. <laughs> and I was ready. Next time Thomas started using one of his folksy text phrases. I started throwing out things about my homeland, my Tennessee roots. I'd talk about uh, the majestic Blue Ridge Mountains. I'd talk about, uh, you know, the mighty Tennessee River that cuts through the heart of downtown Chattanooga, as we all know. Um, <laughs> stuff like that. One day, I, I was talking like that, and Thomas is like, Jonathan, he calls me on it. He's like, I have known you for years, and you have never mentioned Tennessee, and all of a sudden, it's like all you could talk about. You're bringing it up all the time. You talk about Tennessee more than a cowboy talks about his lasso. <laughs> and I said, well, it's like they say in my homeland, you got to drink the whiskey out of your own still. <laughs> so he said, well, if that ain't a fact, God's a possum. And we just went back and forth like that <laughs> for a solid couple hours as two dudes do, you know, making up phrases that no one's ever said. I'm sure you've been there. I'm sure we've all done that. Um, <laughs> it's a weird story, but it, I, something about Acts made me think about this. Uh, like, this is true. Like, most of what Thomas made up as Texas phrases was a lie. It was fictitious, right? But what is not fictitious is he is really from Texas. Like, he has deep roots in a connection and an affection to his homeland, to the state that he grew up in. It really shaped him. Those of you who are from Texas, y'all talk about it a lot. I mean, it's a big part of who you are. Uh, and I think, this is true, I can admit this, on some level, I was jealous I'm like, I want to be from somewhere, you know? Like, I want to have, like, phrases that you throw out, like, are my people back at home? Um, and so that's why I started kind of making it up and throwing it out. And I know that's a silly example, but I think it illustrates a powerful truth about all humanity. The desire to be connected to a place and to a people is in all of us, Right? Like if we're not, if we're just like unanchored out on our own, like we will constantly find things to anchor ourselves to so that we have a people and a place so that we can be shaped in some way that's good by our history. Have you heard the phrase origin story? Um, I, I don't know where it comes from, but the idea of an origin story, I hear a lot in like the superhero movie genre, like there's the origin story of Batman and it tells all about how Batman became Batman, Right. Uh, the idea is really simple, but I think it's really powerful that there are parts of a character's past that make them who they are today, and it's relevant. That story is relevant. It's this really powerful concept that the things that have happened in your past are still somehow active in your present. The past is never past. Never, right? It's always active. It's always a part of our lives. And for good or bad, we are connected to it, and it shapes us. Now, surely you can see how that's true on an individual level, but could you also see that maybe, like, sometimes that's true for groups of people? You think about nations or, like, states or, you know, there's, like, some shared connection to a past. It's absolutely true for our movement, for Christianity. Um, 
What I want us to think about with the book of Acts is this, is it's not just a story about some people. Like, it is our origin story. I know it's like 2,000 years later, but the book of Acts is the story of how kind of we came into being as the people of God, right? And that's what makes it so fascinating. Let me show you a picture from back in the Chattanooga days. That's me. I'm adorable. Oh, Look at me up there, just so full of potential and joy and happiness before the world crushed my spirit. All that hair I once had. Does anyone have a comment you want to make about that? I know. I'm bald. And a big wheel. Do they still have big wheels? Kids these days don't know what they're missing. So this, uh, this is when I lived back in Chattanooga. I was probably two and a half, maybe three years old there. Um, I, the biggest problem I had was just, like, could I stay up past my bedtime? That's all I cared about. No, like, nothing, like... Everything after this picture that happened to me was a first, right? So like I I ventured out into the world and things started happening. Um, This is what the book of Acts is for our movement. It's like a childhood photo, right? It's like this snapshot from the first. It's the origin story, but it's, it's like those first steps of our movement, the first words we spoke out into the world, the first problems we faced and had to figure out. That's what Acts is. Acts is a book of first. And I think just like when we look back at our childhood, there's some important things that we need to learn. And I know sometimes there's some pain there and sometimes there's some joy there, but there's certainly some lessons we need to learn. There's going to be a lot about the childhood of our movement that will help us make sense of our present. Now, I want to caution us. One thing, one temptation that we will have with the book of Acts is we will be tempted to think that everything that happens in the book of Acts is the best way to do it, as if it is like a roadmap for the church, just do this stuff. That's not exactly true. There are going to be some things in the book of Acts that are the best way to do it. There are also going to be some things in the book of Acts that are just the first way we tried to do it. Does that make sense? And what we'll see over the course of the book is how the early believers, they were constantly changing and they were refining and the Holy Spirit was leading them to new things and they made mistakes and they learned from them and they were humble about that. And so it really is like an extraordinary journey of growing up over the course of about a decade. It's also weird at times. Like next week, we're going to look at how they made major life-altering decisions using dice, which I don't recommend. But just there's weird stuff in there. Uh, Like I think as we get to the end, we'll all say, this book has been as fascinating as a bucket of squirrels, you know, (laughs) which they say in Chattanooga. I don't know. So turn with me. I can keep going. I have so many I did not, that did not make the final cut, but I'll listen. We'll leave them out. Chapter 1, verse 1. Let's look at this. Here's how the book begins. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up into heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Now, first, obvious question. What former book? 
so the author of this book is Luke. He also writes the Gospel of Luke. And really, he writes these in kind of like a, a two-part history. Luke is the story of Jesus. Acts is the story of the early church. Now, Luke is a Gentile physician. That's his background, is in medicine. He knew the apostles, and he observed some of these things. So he took it upon himself to both write down the stories that the apostles told him, but also write down some of his observations. He writes both books to a person named Theophilus. There's a little bit of debate on this. Theophilus is a name that means loved by God. Um, some people say it's an actual person. I actually think uh, there's enough evidence to suggest that he's just saying, in general, if you're a person loved by God, this book's for you. So he's writing to us, I would say. And he says, I already told you about Jesus. Let me tell you what comes next. Verse 3. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many, proof, many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Here's an interesting thing to observe. For us, uh, hope and imagination is a really big part of faith, isn't it? Like faith, in fact, the definition is hope in things unseen. These people had a slightly different sort of faith than us. Their faith was not just hope in, in things unseen. It was actually centered on convincing proofs, is what Luke says. So Jesus, like, presented himself to them. Like, they got to touch him. And as much as a, any fact can be proven, um, Jesus' death and resurrection was proven to this group of followers. And he wanted them to really trust it, to really believe, like in the core of who they are, that it was true, because he wanted them to believe that everything he said about God's love is true, everything he said about God's kingdom is coming, and it's true, and Jesus was the proof of that. And so they had this thing that we maybe don't have. They had this convincing proof, and they believed these things as deeply as they could. But even that wasn't enough, was it? Because Jesus says they need one other thing. It's not just knowing what's true and being convinced of it and having it proven to you, but they needed the presence of God in the form of the Holy Spirit to guide them. And so Jesus tells them, go back to Jerusalem and wait for that. And that's really going to be the major theme of the book of Acts. If you want to just write this in the margins, it is about following the leading of the Holy Spirit. And on every page you will see some evidence of the Holy Spirit leading a person to something. Even though they're convinced by the proof, they still don't know what to do with it until the Holy Spirit says, here's what I want you to do. So Jesus tells them, go back to Jerusalem and wait for it. And that really sets up the geography of the book. Now, this is just a small observation. We'll come back to it later. But it's interesting how Luke lays this out. He starts in chapter 1 in Jerusalem, and he ends in chapter 28 in Rome. Uh, and that is kind of an interesting little teaching device that he's doing there. He's giving us an arc that is relevant to the gospel. The gospel starts in Jerusalem, the city of God. That's right where you'd expect it to be, right? But then over the next few chapters, it keeps moving and it keeps spreading and it expands. It expands like yeast in a batch of dough, which is exactly what Jesus predicted. Until it arrives 
at the power center of the ancient world, until it arrives at the hub of everything that was happening, and that's in Rome. And so Luke is trying to tell us something through that arc. He's trying to tell us that this gospel, this new thing that Jesus has brought into being, this new covenant in his blood, it's not actually like the old covenant. If you read the old covenant, the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, it is very tied to a place right? It is very tied to land. It's very tied to the temple, to Jerusalem, to the nation of Israel. The new covenant, on the other hand, is very different. It is unfettered. It is tied to faith in the sufficiency of Christ. That's all it's tied to. And so it is free. It is mobile. It can go anywhere. It is moving. It will continue to move even to this day. It's never confined. It cannot be confined. Um, this is something that at this point, Jesus knows it. The disciples, they're not really up to speed on this. They didn't understand it at all. Look at what they ask him next. Verse 6, then they gathered around him and they asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So still, despite all they've seen and heard, the disciples have this nationalistic fantasy about being at the center of a powerful nation. That's what they wanted. Is to, is to have their nation be powerful. They don't understand the movement that Jesus has begun, so they ask him this nationalistic question that is not a gospel question. It's a nationalistic question. They say, Jesus, are you now going to make Israel great again? And we have to understand, this is like their worldview. This is all they saw. It's what made sense to them. They thought this. If you could conquer death, if you could redeem all sinners and connect us to God, then it makes perfect sense that what you would want to do is set up a nation with borders, protect it, have great power and influence, occupy land, and everyone who wants to worship God could come visit you. Doesn't that make sense? That was the way that they saw it. They're thinking, this is what it means to have power and to exercise power on earth, because that's all they'd seen. Jesus redirects them. Look at verse 7. He said to, the, to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father is set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Now notice the response here. Jesus He's trying to redirect their energy. He says, listen, I don't want you to think about a nation with borders. That's, that's not what we're talking about here, guys. I, I want you to think, honestly, the metaphor that he uses, I want you to think like an insurgency, like agents, like witnesses sent across borders, being able to fit into any culture, any context. You are these witnesses, and you're free to go anywhere to bear witness to me, Judea, Samaria, uh, the ends of the earth. All of it is in play, and I expect all of it to eventually have you showing up and witnessing to me. And the power he, you have, he points out this, it's not going to be connected to occupying land or having money or, or armies or any of that sort of stuff. It is going to be connected to the Holy Spirit, he says. The power is the Holy Spirit coming on you. And it's about having this relationship with God. It's a totally different way of thinking. They're thinking borders, structure, land, nation. Jesus is thinking freedom, flexibility, love, kingdom. That's what he is thinking. And at this point, they still don't get it. They will, but they don't yet. So he, he's tried to explain it one last time. 
And then he floats up into the sky, which I have to say, isn't this the best way to end a frustrating conversation? Um, right? He's like, ends of the earth, people. Now, I know he didn't do this, but this is what I picture. He's like, ends of the earth. And then he just floats up like that. Um, hand, you know, face palm and floating away. But like how many times do you have to tell him? It's bigger than just your nation. You're thinking too small about God's love and his purpose, okay? And they never really got that until the Holy Spirit came. They still thought they're on a trajectory to save Israel. Jesus says, no, we're going to save the whole world into the earth. Then he floats away. And, of course, what do the disciples do? They're like, man, we probably shouldn't have asked that, right? Just staring up in the sky. Look at verse 10. They're looking intently up in the sky as he was going when suddenly... Two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. Um, Now, we assume... These men are angels because Luke has written like this before. Over in Luke chapter 24, remember, Jesus has died. They placed him in the tomb. In the morning, these women go to see Jesus in the tomb, and two men dressed in white appear to them. I love how Luke writes angels, like just the personality that he gives them. Maybe it's the same two. Maybe that's why it's like this. But like these angels are always showing up, and they're asking like these low-key condescending questions. (laughs) Like, do you remember at the tomb, the women show up, and they, they say, why are you looking for the living among the dead? It's rhetorical. Don't answer it, ladies. Right? Like it's meaning to prove a point. Here they're like, why are you standing here looking up into the sky? What's fascinating to me is in both of those accounts, the answer is actually the same. Why are they looking in the tomb? Why are they looking up at the sky? Well, because this is the last place we saw Jesus. (laughs) Like this is where we left him. That's why we're looking here, right? But I think what the angels are trying to do is to shake us to take these people who are fixated on the moment and to shake them and help them understand, listen, Jesus has just done something. Now is time for you to respond. Now is time for you to act because he has already done something. That is really, if you want to in a sentence, that is the entire book of Acts. God has done something through Jesus and now it's time for his people to respond. That's the book. Acts is not a book of strategy for the early church or for the modern church. It's not a a book of tactical ideas and planning. In fact, nobody has a plan throughout the entire book. Like most of the plans that people come up with, like don't work and God has to redirect them. The Holy Spirit has a plan. None of the humans do. And I think we have to observe something from this. When, when we talk about the movement of God, I'm going to say something. I, some of us won't like it. I, don't, I do not like this because of how God made me, but this is true. When it comes to following God, we don't need a plan and a strategy as much as we think we do. We just don't. Uh, what we need to do is cultivate responsiveness of heart. That actually is what makes a difference. If we do that, cultivate responsiveness of heart, then God will figure it out. If it's on us to plan, it's probably not going to work. I know God made some of us to be strategic thinkers. Some of us are planners. And listen, if God made you that way, awesome. God made me that way. You should use your gifts of planning and strategy. You should use that because God gave them to you. But also, if God made you to be a planner, 
Can we just acknowledge to one another that sometimes we use strategy and planning as a way not to trust God and not to listen to Him? You know? Uh, sometimes we rely on what we can figure out. Sometimes we do that because it's hard to listen to God. It's hard to respond when He says, go do this. Um, so use your gifts, but also you look at the early church. No plan. Never should have worked. I mean, think about it. Jesus sends them off that hill. Like if we just, from a strategic standpoint, like what did they have going for them? Nothing, right? There's nothing about this that should have worked, that we'd still be here talking about it 2,000 years later. The only explanation is this, is that God really exists, God led them, and they responded to it. And it worked only because God was in it and he made it work. There's no other reason. Uh, like the power they had was not born of intelligence or affluence or influence or anything else. It's not strategic power. It is power born of responsiveness, of daring to trust. I think that's God. And then stepping out and seeing him deliver and seeing him show up. You know, I, I know this. Everything has changed from Acts until today, right? Everything. Everything has changed. You know, but God hasn't changed, and I don't think that principle has changed at all for us. The kingdom of God, it moves forward solely because, solely because God is in it, and he moves it forward. And our job is not to consolidate power, to wield power, to use in brilliant strategies to make it work. Our job is honestly just to listen and respond. And it's just that simple. Like, that is the core of it. It's not easy to do, but it is simple to understand. It's listening and responding. And that's what we're going to see on every page of Acts. And this is the first major learning from our origin story. When you look at our childhood, we see this loud and clear. If we cultivate a responsive heart to the leading of the Holy Spirit, we will be amazed at what God does in our life and through our life. If we cultivate responsiveness to his Holy Spirit. Um, I, as I mentioned a few times, I love studying church history. One of the fascinating things to ask when you look at like our history as a people group, um, uh, like Christianity has proven so resilient. Like there's so many problems that we face, so many moments where we're like, oh gosh, that's really going south and it's going to stay that way. Uh, we've had so many bumps in the road and yet the fundamentals of faith from day one until today have remained the same. This idea of faith in Jesus and his grace and all of that stuff, it, it has remained the same. So say what you will about Christianity, it is not fragile, not in the least. Like we are a movement that can take a punch, guys. I mean, honestly, we've taken a lot of it. We can take a punch. And what we see over the arc of church history is what we see in the life of the early church and what we see in each individual Christ follower. No matter how bad it gets, no matter how bad it is today, as soon as we start responding to God, something changes. He shows up. And that was true in Acts. So many of the stories we're going to read is uh, there's an individual who's like, I think God wants to do this. And he steps out or she steps out. And then God does incredible things. That is the story of church history. When you study the moments when the church got really ugly and bad and off center and going off the rails, the way that it got back is God led a human to do something and they responded to God and the church was reformed. That's always the story. And it's also the story of our individual lives. 
No matter how ugly it gets today, no matter how convoluted it is in this moment in your personal life, when we start responding to the leading of God, things begin to change. That's what those angels, I think, were trying to say to the disciples on the hill. Um, you know, they, I don't know if they said it super kindly, but they just said, stop standing around. Like, just stop standing around. Start responding. He asked you to do something. Start responding to what Jesus said. It's as simple as that. And that is the lesson that sticks through them, or through every story in Acts. Um, so as we close, I, like, let's just reflect. This is the place we come from. This is our childhood. Well, I don't mean like the state we come from. Not all of us were lucky enough to be born in Tennessee. But all of us who have faith in Jesus have this in common. The childhood of our movement. A movement that is centered on the simple truth that our experience of the kingdom of God is unlocked through our ability to respond to his leadings. When our movement was young, it was characterized by people with responsive hearts, by people who believed, maybe that's God leading me, and stepped out, and the kingdom would advance. Even though so much has changed, I think that's still the core of it. And I don't just mean like, like for a church when we're thinking about ministry in the world. Certainly it applies to that. But I also mean for each of us as individuals. Few things are more important than cultivating a heart that is responsive to God's leading. When it comes to understanding the trajectory of your life and how to change it and how to grow and how to do new things, that is the core of it. Cultivate a heart that is responsive to the leading of God. And as we're in this book, I, I, I think it's going to force us to ask some hard questions. Like, what about this? Like, when was the last time you changed something in your life? You, you were like, this is what I think I should do. And then you changed it because you felt God leads you to something else. When we read Acts, what we will discover in the childhood of our movement is that behavior is normative for Jesus' followers. That's not like some exceptional thing. Like that's day in, day out what we do. I'm going in this direction. Oh, is that you, Lord? I guess I'll go in this direction now. How about this question? What is something that you felt nudged to do lately by the Holy Spirit? Is there something that you felt, I think that's God. How did you respond to it? Or you're like, oh, no, it's probably not God. Or did you take it seriously? Like, this actually could be the Holy Spirit that I'm told indwelt me upon faith with Christ. That nudging is something to respond to. What about this? Has God corrected you on something lately? Has he reformed something in you lately? Something that you're like, no, this is the way it should be. And he's like, actually, it's this thing over here. Like that sort of correction is normative for people who walk with Jesus. Because we have all sorts of convoluted ideas and God has to say, no, you're, you're not seeing it right. It's this. How about this? Are you trusting your planning? Or are you actually making space to listen to the Holy Spirit? Oh. I know some of us are really smart and you should use your intelligence, but also the Holy Spirit should be able to interrupt your plans, right? Those are the hard questions I think Acts is going to force us to ask. And what we might discover is this, is that a lot like those disciples, we catch ourselves standing on the hill staring up at the sky, you know. We need someone to come along and shake us and say, hey, man, what are you looking at? 
Hey, come on. God, Jesus has already done something. It's time to get going. It's time to respond to what he's done. It's time to stop staring at things that you wish you had, things that you want to get back, and step into whatever's next. That's what those angels were saying. And God may not send us angels, but luckily he sent us the book of Acts to teach us the kingdom advances through responsive hearts. And so that's what we have to cultivate. I think that brings us to the communion table. I love this about communion. It's like a simple picture of responding to God, right? Like the table, we understand, was set by Jesus, right? He's the one who says, this is my body, broken for the forgiveness of sin. That's what the bread represents. This is my blood, the new covenant established through my blood. I have set up a kingdom table for you. But then what has to happen? We have to get up and we have to come to the table. We have to sit down with Jesus and partake. We have to respond. We have to take and eat. We have to drink. We have to respond to what he's done. And so as the music begins, I, I want to just give you a moment to, to be with him, to ponder what are you leading me to do, and then to respond by getting up out of your seats and coming to the tables here or in the back, um, and taking the bread and the cup and then sitting back down and just as a mo you know, as an individual with Jesus, take a moment and just ask this question, Jesus, how are you leading me today? It's not a question of is he leading you today? It's just not. We read the scriptures, he is leading all of us. How is he leading you today? And then as we take the bread and the cup, take it in your own time when you feel ready and take it as a promise and a response to his leading. Can we take these elements as a commitment to follow his leading? And so, Jesus, we come to you today humbled by what you've done, recognizing you've done everything. And you simply ask us to respond the way that we've been called. So God, we receive it. We receive your kingdom, your grace, your forgiveness. And we give our lives to it in response, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Come to the table.